Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Delighted today to be joined with Dr. Eric Goosby, who's a close friend, colleague, advisor, collaborator. He's the professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. To many of us here in Washington, D.C., very familiar, served in the Obama administration as ambassador-at-large and head of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Prior to that was the founding director of the domestic program, Ryan White Care Act, Program for Delivery of HIV Services in America. Following the Obama administration, took on the duties of being the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy on Tuberculosis in the roll-up to the high-level meeting on tuberculosis that was held in New York at the UN General Assembly in 2019. Now, just in the last few weeks, we've had another high-level meeting. We'll be talking about that. And just prior to that, a Lancet commission that Eric chaired put out on September 14th its commission report. So we're here to talk about those two things. Eric, thank you so much for joining us and for being with us today. Pleasure, Steve. Happy to be here. I want to add for our listeners that earlier this afternoon, we had a webinar, a video live streamed roundtable discussion that Eric led off along with Dr. Tony Fauci. Needy Bori from USAID and a an advocate and woman who survived tuberculosis, Jacqueline Kuen. And you can find that on the CSIS website. That particular event is called New Tools for Accelerating Progress in Ending Tuberculosis, the Lansing Commission on Tuberculosis Report, 2023. So, Eric, thanks for agreeing to come with us today to talk about the commission report and the high-level meeting. Now, the commission report, the formal title is Scientific Advances in the End of Tuberculosis, a report from the Lancet Commission on, on Tuberculosis. It was published September 14th. The roster of people on this commission report is a, it's a pretty full rock star roster of experts, among them Tony Fauci, Mark Dival, many other familiar, familiar personalities here. Eric, why did you do this? Why did you put yourself through this exercise, which must have been amazingly demanding in order to get this product out September 14th in the form. It's a very readable, extremely succinct, and well-argued report. Why did you do this? Thanks, Steve. It's, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you today. Well, that's a great question. Uh, we have continued uh, to see the urgent, expanding, unmet need of tuberculosis challenge the globe. The delivery systems that have been impacted by TB are all the delivery systems on the planet, but the appropriate adequate response has been shortcoming. We, in this report, were 
optimistic and excited about being able to report and advances in both diagnostics, therapeutics, and uh, the therapeutics as well as in the prevention arena. For that reason, with these new advances in diagnosing, treating with high efficacy and in terms of side effects, drop in side effects, bad ones, shortened the duration, all of those made this moment special. So all of the criticisms we've had from multi-drug resistant TB, looking and thinking that untreated or poorly treated, intermittently treated drug-sensitive TB resulted in multi-drug resistant TB. We have seen that there is a cadre of multi-drug resistant TB that is kind of in the genome, if I could say that, already that is not from inappropriate use or intermittent use of antimycobacterial drugs with drug-sensitive TB. We thought that that was where it emerged. And we're now looking at which one is more. But all to say that our ability to deal with this disease that kills one, you know, the 1.6 million annually is a number that we need to own and look at how we do or don't position our delivery systems to identify and treat these individuals. So is it fair to say, Eric... I mean, you cited the 1.6 million deaths from tuberculosis, which is a 2021 number. That's a powerful number. That's a big number. The prior number, I think from 2019, perhaps, was 1.4 million. That's correct. Which is also a big number. But what that suggests is we had a pretty significant regression during the pandemic era. It's always been difficult to get a concentrated and effective and sustained global attention around tuberculosis for a bunch of different reasons. But because of the efforts by you and others, there's been steady progress in a number of different key dimensions. But describe a bit about what happened in the pandemic in terms of the regression. And now there's this effort to get us back to at least where we were pre-January 20. Well, as you and everybody has experienced, COVID came and grabbed our attention completely. We were not prepared really in any setting, especially in the developed settings, to rapidly contain the infection and understand kind of its natural history, its pathophysiology. And I think put us at a deficit, a deficit in our ability to respond. But what was remarkable to see is that in virtually every high-burdened COVID setting and in most of the lower-burdened COVID settings, the individuals who were mobilized to respond initially to the presence of COVID were the people in the TB service programs for identification of individuals who were infected and to find individuals around them who were exposed, mobilize the case-finding contact tracing systems that we have already stood up for TB in high-burden countries. That fact, I think, reminded us that the need for a in medical infrastructure to be present, available, and vigilant is there with the COVID pandemic threat. Our ability to sustain support for what we will need with a pandemic in the future is in part going to be expanding, supporting the expansion of services for TB. And we are looking at using TB as a surrogate marker of kind of infrastructure readiness for pandemic response kind of globally. It really was the science that broke through in the diagnostic and treatment, especially the treatment arena, matched, matched with our ability to 
challenge global infrastructure and systems like Global Fund and other large kind of repositories of resources that are developing now in response to the pandemic. We're looking at new pots emerging that will have a Venn diagram overlay with TB services, both diagnostic and therapeutic. So let's focus for a moment on the encouraging developments. I mean, we've got better and cheaper diagnostics. We've got faster treatments. And we've got at least one major vaccine candidate that is getting people quite excited. Can you just walk us through those three things? Because my takeaway from reading your report and from looking at the high-level meeting on September 22nd up in New York, a lot of the excitement was around getting much better tools in this period, which people have been clamoring for forever. As many people, yourself included, Jeremy Farrar, at chief scientist at WHO, former head of Wellcome Trust, and others have said, look, these are hard and long fights getting to the point where you have far better, cheaper, affordable, accessible in low-income settings, low- and middle-income settings, the diagnostics and the therapies you need, and also the pipeline towards an effective vaccine, which has been very elusive. We have not had, this is this will be the first generation vaccine, really. We've have We've had one for decades for children, uh, but otherwise we've, we've been operating with this disease that kills, as you say, 1.6 million people in 2021 without a vaccine. But now there's the possibility of one on the horizon. Tell us, walk us through those advances. Let's start with the vaccine, which is called M72. And this is a, a vaccine that has really benefited from the work that was done on HIV vaccine development. And when the COVID presented, a lot of the platforms that were stood up for HIV were, again, used to rapidly go down the road with COVID. And that's where the vaccine for COVID came out in less than a year. We were actually dealing with clinical trials on that. I think that this vaccine has about a 42 to 47 percent efficacy rate in preventing pulmonary disease when given to individuals who are, you know, negative for TB exposure, don't have any evidence of active disease. So active disease has been ruled out, vaccinated, and then followed over time. Data like this has never been created before, so we can say that this is a breakthrough, and I believe that we're within the kind of bubble of the science to get this better and move the 47 up without a doubt. Can you explain to a lay listener, somebody who's not a not an expert in this area, who might, might scratch her or his head and say, 42 to 47 percent doesn't sound very good. It seems to me that if this does come forward in the next three to five years, gets approved, becomes available, will have profound impact even at that level. Can you explain that? That's, that really is the central point, Steve. If you think of 100 people and if you say they've got a disease process that you can prevent in 50% of them, almost half of them, by giving them this vaccine, you on a global level with 10 million new infections annually will drop new infections. And out of that, about 10% go on to multidrug resistant disease. So we are interrupting a continuum and a cascade yeah. that results in both MDR and drug sensitive disease. 
this is a breakthrough that we have looked at and waited for. The vaccine you were referring to is BCG that did have efficacy. The world thought it worked for TB for everybody, adults and children. When we looked at it, it was only really working for children, and it doesn't work to prevent pulmonary disease. It really works to prevent CNS disease, meningitis, tubercular meningitis. So a very thin uh, slice protection that you're getting, but from a deadly infection, if it gets into the meninges, your survival rate is zero just about. But the individual, this vaccine itself has changed that. So the numbers are huge when you multiply that out. And so under the best of scenarios, we might see this result in something that's usable and approved for use. It's going to be several years out, at least three to five years, right? You know, these things take that long to go through, you know, kind of phase 2B and three clinical trials. But as you saw with COVID, you can accelerate it if you really think you've got something that is going to benefit individuals. But you have to make a risk-benefit argument. But I believe if we are in that number of 47 or better, we can make a risk-benefit argument to have this roll out faster. Yeah, it's also amazing to me that the Gates Foundation and Wellcome Trust combined to cover those field trials at the cost of $550 million, which is a huge bet. Right. This is not NIH funding this. I'm sure NIH has some involvement. It's GSK that has moved this forward up to this point. So they're a corporate partner in this. And you've got Gates and Welcome making this bet. And they have 50 sites enrolled in South Africa, Malawi, Kenya, Southern Eastern Africa, and then Southeast Asia, a number of key countries, Southeast Asia. That also gives bargaining power to those countries around access, doesn't it? And manufacturing capacity, potentially. It absolutely does. One of the, I think, legitimate criticisms of the COVID response was that countries that did not have a manufacturing capability didn't get the vaccine. And I think that in the world we're in, that is going to continue to be the case. We are not in a in a world that looks at a need unmet and things move toward a vacuum to fill it. We have a struggle to fill those needs. And I think that the way our societies are evolving, it is very much more what's the individual yield or non-yield. And that's why the individual is, is invested in contributing to the outcome. Countries are backing off from that position that you and I grew up with as part, part of the narrative. People were embarrassed not to frame their involvement and interest in a problem that way. Now we really have to have a cost-effective argument just to get people to the table or they are not going to come. But with the cost-effective argument, they will come. And that's when the data for efficacy and safety really can be delivered. But I think you're Really, the challenge really, Steve, as you're alluding to, is really have we taken advantage of the resources where they are in the public and private sector? Public sector, we can usually access on some level, but getting it to concentrate on one problem in one geography is usually the problem. But we haven't brought in significant contributions from the private sector in these infectious disease threats. And I, I think I'm hoping that the COVID lesson, one of them will be that these partnerships are critical for rapid discovery and deployment. And I believe that 
with the time for multi-drug resistant TB killing 50% of the people who get it is the current state with these newly effective antimicrobacterial drugs, we've dropped that death rate precipitously down without losing your hearing or your kidneys. So these side effects have pretty much been eliminated. And these drugs, people don't even know they're on them. And they take them for a six-month period of time instead of 24 months, which right. was the ER treatment. Right. So it's it really is a moment. And for all of those reasons, I'm hoping we can uh, rally the global community around a special attention to this issue for the next decade or so. Now, because the 10 highest burden countries on tuberculosis account for almost all of this, yeah. a very vast majority, and those 10 high burden countries tend to be fairly powerful, large middle income countries. We've got India, China, Russia, South Africa, Philippines. These are countries that tuberculosis is a huge problem. They're not exactly typically our major partner. In the case of South Africa, which they're our major partner on, on PEPFAR, on HIV, and by definition, a major partner on tuberculosis. So our engagement there as a partner, very, very strong. We don't exactly have the sweetest relationship with Russia and China at the moment. Yet these are countries that if they have the political will to take this on, things can move. Things can really begin to move. Can you say a a few words about how do you engage? You were the special envoy for the Secretary General in the lead up to the last high level meeting. How do you, and you were very much in the diplomacy around thinking around these issues. How do you move those 10 high burden countries to another position to where this is higher priority, greater budgetary commitments, and greater openness to these kind of partnerships with private sector and others? The kind of global health diplomacy that's associated with tuberculosis has been a roller coaster of advantages and disadvantages. With the advent of new diagnostics 10 years ago, the glimmer of, well, we can now identify multi-drug resistant individuals at the point of care and not have to wait until they fail drug sensitive treatment to put them on the, you know, there's the six other drugs that they needed to be on. And as a result, lost people, lost people to follow up and lost people from their inability to absorb and maintain with the side effect burden that it created. I think that we are truly in a, a moment where global health diplomacy is the kind of platform on which the TB response and the pandemic response must be discussed on. And I think TB has an opportunity to put itself kind of tucked under the arm of the global wave of pandemic preparedness that we see every country talking about and coalescing mm -hmm. around kind of mechanisms to move desire to program. And I believe that getting in those conversations now critical. It's interesting to see how much USAID has emerged in trying to take on that role of diplomatic engagement and PEPFAR. Right. PEPFAR has, in the State Department, started a bureau that focuses on preparedness as well as security because of the large footprint it has in the same countries that we would be concerned about. It was logical to put PEPFAR in a position where it also had responsibilities that overlapped in security. And So we have new diplomatic capacity through the creation of this new Bureau of Global Health Security and Diplomacy. 
under Assistant Secretary uh, John Nkengazong that could be put towards this. That's right. This is a huge reflection of the importance the United States government puts on this issue. And it warms my heart to see USAID aggressively trying to support and buttress that effort in the dialogue in country. And it's my belief that we're at a moment where the pivot that we're in is going to be to more effective, more impactful program support. And I believe it's that combination of program and the emphasis that USAID has put on community as kind of the roots that give you a sustained effort in between kind of moments of increased interest, like with a pandemic. Yeah. I was very encouraged to see how much emphasis you've placed in the commission report on empowering community advocates, folks that are living, that have survived tuberculosis or are vulnerable and endangered and otherwise implicated in their own families and communities by what's happened, that they be a priority in building this constituency in this next period. That theme comes through loud and clear. No, I really appreciate you you highlighting that. You know, in Jackie's comments in the session that we just had earlier about the stigma that she was aware of both in herself, the last thing doctors and nurses want to do after they've completed treatment is become kind of a voice and advocate for it. And it's because of the stigma. You see people who benefited from it had a, had a difficult course but won the fight unwilling to come back in and talk to other members of the community who may be at higher risk for TB. So I was, you know, I, you know, I was aware of the HIV stigma domestically that we saw and internationally the same, but this made the HIV stigma look like it, it was, you know, minimal. This is much stronger. So it's an interesting, more deeply rooted in the consciousness of the population. Thank you. Say a word about the high-level meeting itself up in New York. This was September 22nd. It was the end of that week following the high-level meeting on universal health coverage and the high-level meeting on pandemic preparedness and response. Obviously, all three of these things are interrelated. How did it go? What was notable about the outcome from that? I think we were a little disappointed to be at the end of the week for the TB part of that triumvirate, but we're happy that the other two were there as well because there is a huge overlap in what a country needs to do about those problems. I think that the other thing I would say that was a point of of disappointment was the fact that a lot of countries did not stand up in the assembly and address the the TB burden, which is something that we kind of measure engagement from. But it's really an artificial kind of reflection of interest or commitment. All the more reason that we now need to take those 20 high burden countries that USAID has prioritized and go back with a diplomatic agenda that engages them in defining their population, the burden of disease they carry, and how with the other delivery systems moving around the primary care needs, but also HIV needs, that has funding lines, we need to weave together resources to expand capability on the ground. And I think we now are in a position where diagnostics and therapeutics have dropped in their costs and severity or, you know, in terms of severity of side effects to the degree that now there's no excuse for old treatments to continue on the planet. And that's the big word. Eric, I hadn't mentioned this earlier. 
Can we take a few minutes and just talk about Senator Feinstein? She's passed. She's iconic. She played an enormous role in our global strategy around HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, other related diseases as mayor, as supervisor, and then mayor of San Francisco in the early days, early advent of HIV crisis with the epicenter in San Francisco. She was extremely important, integral to the response, and has been of a heroic status on many other issues around things like gun control, her witnessing of Mayor Mosconi and Harvey Milk's murder by a disgruntled supervisor, and her opposition to overseas U.S. torture, which became a huge issue in the Iraq war. And so say a bit, I know you, you grew up in this era in San Francisco, your family has connections, you've got deep roots there, and, and I just wanted you to offer your reflections on her. Well, thanks, Steve. Well, what, what a loss of just a champion on so many different levels. Senator Feinstein led the way and kind of broke ceilings that people don't appreciate she was associated with. The first female supervisor to be the uh, president of the Board of Supervisors. She was the first president of the Board of Supervisors to actually, in the tragedy of Mayor Moscone's death, uh, assassination, moving into the mayor role. And the San Francisco community had to go through a a warm and fuzzy reacquaintance, acquaintance with her to accept her in that broader role. But she certainly rose to the occasion and endeared herself with segments of the community that she carried on through her role as senator. I have to say, you reminded me, her gun control in California, keeping the assault weapons off uh, and how she brought that to the national discourse. I really have to say she was a champion of, of women's issues, kind of first time on every level, saw that and took that on as something she needed to support and foster as senator. She was elected to the Senate in the year of the woman, right? After the, the controversies over uh, Clarice Thomas's nomination for the Supreme Court, is she then ran and was elected in that period when the numbers of women elected into the Senate spiked. That's right. She was part of that group that came in and uh, I know took great pride in it. She personally took great pride in being that cohort that came in and has continued to run with it. The last area that I just wanted to acknowledge is, you know, that we forget about her oversight role in the CIA oversight for torture, as you mentioned in your introduction. That is still giving, if I could say it that way, in terms of the fruit that we are benefiting from from that intervention. The work she did and the, the specific and how careful she was in acquiring the, the specifics of the, of the areas of concern endeared herself to the membership in the CIA as well. And because of the honest clarity and kind of follow through that she presented to them. So their trust went up and a lot more was revealed as a result. But I don't think I can think of another individual who has, in such substantive ways, uh, contributed to kind of a triumvirate of arenas. And she is someone we will not only miss, but I think as a society and as a country, we needed Diane Feinstein. And I'm very grateful that she was willing to serve as long as she did, but we will miss her. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's a very fitting end to our conversation. Eric, I want to congratulate you 
on the Lancet Commission report. It's really an excellent piece of work, very timely, very well written, very digestible, very clear around what needs to happen next. We just need these constant reminders and updates and pointing to the points of light that are emerging, which we've talked about here, but also the kind of tough challenges that are still there in terms of political will, finances, prioritization, getting private industry involved over the long haul, getting that pipeline full, which is, isn't really full at the moment, but we have some very promising things happening. So thank you so much and congratulations. It's really been terrific to spend so much time with you today. Yeah, it's been great for me too, Steve. It's great to see you. Thanks for including me. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.